Thanks, Aaron. Hi, everybody. <laughs> this is so weird. <laughs> um, yeah, this morning when I, when I got ready to leave the house, I looked down and my pants were wrinkled. And I thought, oh, I don't really care. Then we went to breakfast over at Thruway and my grandson put one of those creamers in his mouth and it splurted everywhere, got all over me. Because I was sitting right next to him. I thought, well, here I am, unpolished, but this is what you get. So it's just me. <laughs> so um, when Aaron asked me if I would do this, um, he asked me about 10 days ago, I think it was. Uh, my immediate reply was, no way, I am not going to do that because it's Mother's Day, and I think you should tell me and all my friends why we're important and special. I don't want to be up here working, but he explained that on Mother's Day at OVV, it's a, it's a tradition to have a woman share the pulpit with him, so I am actually very honored to be here, and I just pray that uh, what God has laid on my heart will uh, just touch your hearts too. And I'm going to only spend a very brief time on the subject of motherhood because if I look around this room, more than 50% of us are not mothers. And so, but that being said, it is Mother's Day. So I do want to take a few moments to speak on that subject. When I was preparing for this morning, I came across one person's summation of what a mother teaches. And here it is. My mother taught me logic. If you fall off that swing and break your neck, you cannot come to the store with me. My mother taught me humor. When that lawnmower cuts off your toes, don't you come running to me. My mother taught me, my mother taught me genetics. You are just like your father. <laughs> and that's my son who's just like his father. My mother taught me anticipation. Just wait till your father gets home. And my mother taught me about receiving. You are going to get it when we get home. My mother taught me about religion. You better pray that's going to come out of the carpet. My mother taught me about stamina. You'll sit there until that spinach is finished. And my mother taught me about the circle of life. I brought you into this world and I can take you out. And the all-time favorite thing my mother taught me is justice. One day you will have kids and I hope they turn out just like you. And then you'll see what it's like. I can't wait. So our audience this morning is made up of two groups of people. Those who are mothers and those who are not mothers. But there's one thing we all have in common. We all have a mother. So with that in mind, I'd like to invite you to watch a video clip with me of a mom's version of Let It Go from the movie Frozen. So... I can relate to that mom's emotions on a couple of levels. Firstly, as a mom, I can literally feel her pain and her exasperation at dealing with children and all the frustrations that they create. But I can also feel her incredible awareness of the awesome privilege it is to be somebody's mommy. I love the last few lines, I'm their only mom, so here I stand and here I'll stay, because I'm their mom and that stuff never bothered me anyway. Doug and I have four married children. Between them, the dividends have finally doubled, and we have eight perfect grandchildren, with another one on the way just for good measure. Three of these precious families are here this morning with me to give me moral support. Our oldest daughter and her family live in Nova Scotia and couldn't make it on such short notice. 
The second way that I relate to this mom is by looking at her as a picture of my own mom and how she must have felt at times when she was raising myself and my four younger siblings. I used to get a spanking every morning just because she knew I would need it by noon. Not really, but it felt like that. It's not easy being a mom, but it is very rewarding. How do you relate to this mom? As a mom, as her child, if it's as a young mom, be encouraged. It really does get better and easier. If you're the mom of teens, I seriously say you are very blessed. I loved having teenagers. Cultivate your relationship with your teens. Open up those lines of communication and see them as people, people that God has chosen to entrust them to your loving care, to, to be that safe place where they can share their hearts, good and bad, and where they always know they have a cheerleader cheering them on. If you're relating to this mom as being your mom, I would encourage you to take a good look at how many sacrifices she might have made in raising you. If your mom is still living, thank her. It's not too late. Thank me, kids. Okay. And if she's already gone, pass on, pass on the legacy that you can give to your kids and knowing what kind of a woman she was. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, so that's enough about moms. I told you it was going to be short about moms. If, this, if I were to give this message a title, it would be The Table of Grace. Good, John. As a family, one of our favorite places to, to gather is around a table. We actually still hold hands and pray before we eat. I know it's old-fashioned, but we do it anyway. And now that the grandkids are sitting with us at the table with us, we're singing, Oh, the Lord is good to me. And so I thank the Lord for giving me the things I need, the sun and the rain and my family. The Lord is good to me. And I was thinking and praying about this morning. I started remembering the vast array of people we've had sit at our dining room table over the last 35 years. We've had quite a vast variety of guests come at our table. From Scott Reed, our local MP, to recovering addicts from Jericho Road. Many of whom have lived on the streets since they were kids and never experienced a family meal around a table. We've had babies and seniors and all the ages in between. We've had people who are followers of Christ, people who are searching for God, and people who really don't want anything to do with him. And this got me thinking about another table, a table at which Christ and his disciples would gather for meals together. We typically think about the table with Jesus at it as just that one time, the Last Supper, but think about it. We know that Jesus and his disciples were together a lot. Matthew 26, 17 to 19 tells us. Pardon? Oh, sorry. <laughs> On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into a, go into a certain city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. I'm not sure, but it sure sounds like Jesus must have known this man. And the disciples didn't question him, so I wonder if they might have eaten there before. They worked together and they ate together. I imagine that there were many times where they might have gathered at this table and others like it to enjoy each other's company and eat meals together. 
And then I started imagining the people who might have been welcomed at this table and of the other tables at which he would have sat. Jesus was not exclusive in his choice of acquaintances. He seemed rather open to a large range of people. Just think with me of some of the people who Jesus would have welcomed at his table. How about the woman with the alabaster jar? In Luke 7, 36 to 50, we read, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said, Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer to wash the dust off my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she didn't stop kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Or what about the time that Jesus was sitting and eating with tax collectors? We all complain about tax collectors in our day and age, but whatever our thoughts are on this subject, they pale in comparison to the tax collectors of Jesus' day. Paying taxes has never been a popular idea, but it is a necessary one. Consider these four reasons why the tax collectors in Jesus' day might have been particularly looked down upon. Number one, the Roman government was an oppressive regime, so those who collected taxes for the government bore the brunt of much public displeasure. Number two, these particular tax collectors were Jews, and as such were seen as traitors among their own countrymen. Number three, it was common knowledge that tax collectors cheated the people that they collected from, so they would skim some money off the top. And number four, because of keeping this extra money for themselves, they were able to live well-to-do lives off off the hard-earned income of their fellow fellow countrymen. So no wonder we read in Mark 2 that the people were upset that Jesus would eat a meal with tax collectors. Reading from verses 13 to 17 in Mark 2, Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw the son of Alphaeus sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guest. 
along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many of this kind of people among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of the religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, he asked his disciples, Why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call those who think they are righteous. Sorry, I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners. Another time Jesus was in the home of some Pharisees, and they were still trying to trip him up. Listen in on this scene from Luke 2, 7 to 14. When Jesus noticed all who had come to dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be embarrassed, and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will say, come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, and your rich neighbors, for they will, not, they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for those... God will reward, reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. There was a time in my life when I would have likely agreed with the Pharisees. None of these people were strong pillars of society. The woman with the alabaster jar did not deserve to be at that table. True, she wasn't eating at the table, but even being bold enough to come into that room and wash Jesus' feet didn't seem to quite fit in with a stereotypical idea of who's worthy to do such a thing. And the the tax collectors were bad guys. And the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, these are not people who would be on a list of desirable guests. Our family is a very close-knit one. Being around our table is something that I cherish and am very protective of. I always dreaded the day when our nest would be empty. As much as I love my husband and am thankful for him, I really wasn't excited about it being just the two of us around the table. Because mealtime is precious to me, and I love having my children with me. Well, little did I know that God had planned that our nest would not be empty. And it wasn't going to be just Doug and me around our table. Three and a half years ago, Doug's brother uh, moved in with us. His name is Jimmy. He's 63. He was 63 at the time. And David, our last child to get married, had just moved out a month earlier. Now, this might not sound like a big deal to you, but believe me, it was not a decision that we made lightly. You see, Jimmy has Asperger's syndrome and Parkinson's disease, as well as a myriad of other health issues. My favorite part of the day was being rescripted, and I did not like it. My table had become a table of disgrace, and not because of Jimmy. It was because of my sinful and hateful attitude at having this person who I decided was not fit to be at my table. And he's there every day, three days a meal, seven days a week. Those Pharisees in in Jesus' day were no worse than I had become. This is something that I still have to work on daily. 
Lately, Doug has been gone more than he's been home at mealtime, so it's been Jimmy and me at my cherished table. We don't sing The Lord is Good to Me, but we do hold hands and pray, and then we watch old reruns of Hogan's Heroes or Andy Griffith on my laptop because there's not a whole lot to talk about with Jimmy. And actually, we do enjoy doing this together, which surprises me. Extending grace is a huge part of being at a table with other people. When the people around my table are people that I love, it's easy to show grace. When there are people around my table whom I find difficult to love, it's not so easy. In fact, without God's help, it's impossible. Believe me, I've tried. There are many people today who are preaching a watered-down version of grace. Grace without repentance. Yes, God's grace is available to anyone, but that grace was paid for at the greatest price of all, Jesus Christ's death on a cross. Most of us know verses like Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Ephesians 2.8 and 9, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so that None of us can boast about it. When we talk about grace being free, we need to remember also that once we've received it, we shouldn't take it for granted. When we think about the price that was paid by Jesus Christ to purchase this gift, it compels us to strive to live, to strive to live our lives for him. On this side of heaven, none of us are going to achieve sinless perfection. But if we ever think we've attained it, then we would probably lose it right away because that would be pride, and that's not sinless. And this brings me to mind another gift of grace that we find in 1 John 5, sorry, 1 John 1, verses 5 to 10. John is speaking to believers when he says, This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Wow. I'm so glad they put John, 1 John 1, 9 in there particularly because I am a sinner saved by grace and in constant need of that, his intervention and his forgiveness in my life. This table of grace is available for everyone. Everyone who sees their need of God's grace and forgiveness. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Seated at this table of grace are the woman with the alabaster jar, the tax collectors, the woman at the well, murderers, thieves, liars, and cheaters. And sitting among them are also those who have taken John 3:16 and 17 at face value. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There's nothing that you can do to make you, God love you more than he does right now. There's absolutely nothing you can do to make him love you more than he does at this very moment. I invite you now to listen carefully to the words of our closing song, 
And I pray that you will always remember that you are welcome at the table of grace.
such an encouragement to me and I just pray that they would be to you as well. Hear the good news you've in invited. This includes every single one of us, no matter what others may say, even the negative things that you say to yourself, which is what I struggle with most. My darkest sins will be forgiven. Every single sin will be forgiven because of God's gift of grace and you will always have a place. Thank you so much for your attention. God's blessing on you.